Hello, and welcome to Judgment Calls. I'm David Levy, director of the Bolch Judicial Institute at Duke Law School. Our guest today is Judge Anne Claire Williams. Judge Williams served as a federal judge for more than 30 years, first on the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Illinois in Chicago, and then on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, covering Illinois, Wisconsin, and Indiana. She was the first black woman, the first person of color to be appointed to serve uh, on the Seventh Circuit and the first black woman on the U.S. District Court. Judge Williams, you received just about every honor a judge can earn, including the Ed Edward J. Devitt Award uh, distingu for Distinguished Service, uh, which, which recognizes some extraordinary uh, judges in the, in the federal judiciary. I was present that day in the Supreme Court when the award was made to you, and it was a, a very wonderful and moving ceremony presided over by Justice Sotomayor. After such a wonderfully distinguished career, Judge Williams stepped down from the bench in 2018 and is now of counsel at Jones Day, leading the firm's efforts to advance the rule of law in Africa. Judge Williams, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really an honor uh, to have you with us. I thought we could start at the beginning and take you through your amazing life in the law. Uh, you grew up in Detroit, Michigan, which uh, is not in the Seventh Circuit. Um, what was your childhood like? Was, it, was there anything about it that was remarkable or that we would say, aha, that was the, the beginning of the greatness that, that came to, to Ann Williams? Well, well, first, David, thank you. It's an honor to be on this program uh, to, and to be sharing this platform uh, with you. As you know, we served together for a period of time. Our, our, our careers intersected, and it's a yes, pleasure to be here with you. So I grew up in Detroit. I had very loving parents. Uh, my dad, when he moved to Detroit, was a bus driver, and my mother worked in a school for delinquent children. Now, they both had degrees from historically Black colleges, but being Black, when they got to Detroit, couldn't find work in their fields. So we had a childhood where we were supported and nurtured. I didn't want for anything. We weren't wealthy by any means, but my parents certainly believed in education and the value of education and how important it was for me and my two sisters. And they shared the American dream. They also told me that I had to work twice as hard because I was black to achieve whatever it was I wanted in life. And fortunately, my dad quit driving the bus after 20 years. He, he had enough money in his pension. He had applied to be a supervisor and the white supervisor told him he was not qualified, even though he had been a staff sergeant in the army and daddy decided to go back to school to become a teacher. As fate would have it, daddy and I were in classes together at Wayne State University. And I'll tell you amazing? more about that uh, about that later as we move on to what happened and how that happened. Well, two remarkable parents, both educators eventually. And, and that's, and, and, and as you say, you, you then went, got two education degrees. You have a bachelor in science of science from Wayne State University in elementary education. And then you also have a master's of arts in guidance uh, 
guidance, guidance and counseling from the University of Michigan. And then you taught in the Detroit public school system before you went to law school. I think I have that right. Um, so that was that was a big commitment by you. You were you were on path to be a uh, a teacher. Absolutely. And my mother, when uh, blacks could get full time positions at the Board of Education, she worked 17 years. Well, 12 years at the home for delinquent kids, then five years as a substitute. And finally she could sign a contract full time because blacks were admitted to the system. My dad went back to school. We were in classes together and he wanted to be a teacher. Originally he had wanted to be a preacher. Um, and it was really when we were in classes together that it hit me, bus driver, college degree, college degree, bus driver and tears started rolling down my cheeks and I went home and said, Daddy, how could you stand it? You, you, you had a college degree and you drove a bus for 20 years. And he said, first, no one could take my education away from me. I will always have that. Two, being a bu bus driver is good, honest, decent work. There were a lot of black accountants and lawyers driving buses with Daddy. And he knew that it was noble work Three, he said, I did what I had to do because I wanted to make it better for you and your sisters. I wanted you to be able to achieve more than we have achieved. And that was important. That was the most important thing, our family. So their influence in terms of teaching, and I actually started helping with kids in, in high school tutoring. I was a camp counselor in the summertime. I always loved kids and teaching. And I think it was the impact that my teachers had on me. They were so influential in my life. And I worked with inner city kids and I saw the difference that teachers made. And it, they were primarily black students that I taught and I saw so many bright kids with potential who had dreams, but didn't have people who believed in them. And so one of the things I did, I taught music and homeroom. And I knew the kids had the potential to do. I'll tell you one story. I, we had a program for Martin Luther King and there were several songs the kids had to sing. And one of the kids learn the, I wanted him to learn the I have a dream speech. And some of the teachers said, well, the kids will never be able to, you're going to have to give them the music. They'll never be able to do it without looking at the words. Well, all the kids memorize the words, just like I was taught when I was in choir, you memorize the words. So I also knew that how you view students, whether you believe in them, makes a difference and that teachers can have a real impact. So teaching is really in my heart. And after teaching there, I ultimately taught trial advocacy and teaching has just been throughout my life. So I know you, teachers make a difference. And you've had a role, you've mentored a lot of, of, of people over your, over your long career in the law. I know that's really been important to you to, to help, help people, women, minorities and others come along and get the self-confidence that they need to get over the the hurdles that we all have to get over eventually, but it really helps to have somebody give you a little push. It does. And there were a lot of people that helped me. So part of what my parents taught me was you have to pay back to those to whom much is given, much is expected. So they expected me 
to never forget those that had helped me along the way and that I had an obligation to help others. You know, I'm thinking of your father in that sitting in that classroom with you and just how filled his heart uh, must have been with with pride and love for you that, you know, why, why you were disappointed for him that he was there, but he probably felt like this is the most wonderful thing that here I am with my daughter and we're both studying together to become something uh, really special. Uh, he, must have he, been. He, he loved that. And but of course what brought tears to both of their eyes, I was blessed. Both of my parents were there for both of, both of my investitures. Oh, that is really something. And the Court of Appeals. And yeah, there was no special. one prouder. You know, it was amazing. I'm sure that's right. So uh, a big career switch, and you went off to Notre Dame for law school. So how did, how did uh, why did you decide uh, to do that? And um, then, then let's talk about your experience at Notre Dame, which is on everybody's lips right now because right, of our, right. new, our new justice. New justice. Uh, so actually went to law school on a dare, had never thought about law school, didn't know a lawyer, didn't know a judge, of course, knew about Perry Mason because we watched him every week and he won every case. And I knew about Thurgood Marshall and the civil rights movement because my parents were very active. But I didn't know a lawyer, hadn't touched a lawyer. And a friend of mine from high school who was getting his master's in social work came by my house one day when I was getting my master's and said, you know, uh, what are you going to do next year? I said, oh, I don't know. Uh, he said, well, I'm going to law school. We were, we were kind of competitive. So I said, so am I. And he said, you know, we need to <laughs> take a test. I said, you're kidding. So he went, got the forms. We took the test. I had no anxiety, no prep. Thank God did well, but applied very late. So Harvard, Yale, Notre Dame, Michigan, Wayne State said great score, great grade point, but too late. Try next year. But at that point, as I thought about it more, I said, well, you know, teachers teach and lawyers teach. Lawyers have to teach judges, opposing counsel clients, teachers counsel, lawyers counsel. Teachers have to persuade, lawyers have to persuade. So as time went on that summer, I started thinking, you know, I could be a lawyer. This has prepared me to be a lawyer. And as fate would have it, a friend of mine, Willie Lipscomb, who later became a judge in Detroit, was taking a course at Notre Dame, a pre-law course, and became friends with someone on the admissions council. And that friend said, at some point, uh, someone canceled out of the class. And my friend Willie said, well, Ann Williams qualified, but she was late. And so I actually have my letter from Notre Dame, the rejection letter and the acceptance letter. And I rolled into Notre Dame the night before school started, called Willie and said, Willie, I'm in. I'm so happy I'm in graduate housing and can't wait till tomorrow. And he said, and I quote, and Claire, have you done the reading? To which I said, Willie, tomorrow's the first day of class. I will buy my books. I will get my assignment. I will do my reading. He said, no, Anne Claire, we're in the same section. So I got in my little Volkswagen, drove to Willie's without GPS and the navigation system. And Willie had to actually explain to me what the terms of Pelly meant uh, remand, all the various terms, totally foreign to me. And that's how I started law school. I like to tell that story because <laughs> look at where I ended up, David. Yeah, pretty good. <laughs> uh, and so I say to students that I'm talking to, 
and I tell that story and I share with them the tips I've learned through the years that they can go far beyond what I did because for a little black girl from Detroit to come to law school totally unprepared and to end up where I ended up there is no limit so that's how I started. Now, Notre Dame was not easy because Wayne State and University of Michigan, they were both public schools. Uh, Notre Dame was not. Uh, and so it was, um, it was an adjustment. Uh, so there were parietal hours in the women's dorm. Men couldn't visit. There were, uh, in my class, I was the only African-American woman and there had only been a black woman admitted the year before I went to school. There were about maybe 20 women in the class. So I hadn't been in that kind of environment before. So that was an adjustment, but we had an incredible president, Father Ted Hesburgh, who was the right hand. He actually led the Civil Rights Commission and uh, his counsel, Howard Glickstein, came to Notre Dame to start the Civil Rights Center at Notre Dame. So I worked as a research assistant for Howard and uh, learned a lot about, lot more about civil rights. And then one of my summers was a, a intern for the uh, law school uh, civil rights project, the lawyers committee. So the experience at Notre Dame was a, a very good experience. I also served as deputy director of the Legal Aid Society and worked in the Indiana prison teaching legal writing, but it wasn't easy. It wasn't yeah. easy. It uh, wasn't law easy. School, law school is not easy. <laughs> no, it's not. And I was an assistant dorm director at Notre Dame. So I had the experience of going to the football games and everything, but it was a very good training. And the one positive about Notre Dame was the message of serving because that's always been behind the philosophy of Notre Dame that our lawyers make a difference. So that was a philosophy I had anyway and Notre Dame helped me. Also Notre Dame was critical in terms of my next job move. And that know, was and, to and, become a law clerk on the Seventh Circuit where you would eventually be a judge. Of course, you didn't know that at the time. No, I didn't. But it was the dean of the law school who told me that the chief judge of the circuit court, Luther Swigert, was in his last year. There had only been two or three women law clerks to any judge. And he wanted to make a statement. He wanted to hire all women. And he hoped he could hire a black woman. So he called the dean, David Link, who had gone to Notre Dame and was our dean and, 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 and David recommended me for the position. Swigert wanted to hire three women. He only had two spots. So he called his friend, Bob Sprecher and said, would you consider Ann Williams as your second law clerk? And he did. And I then clerked for Bob Sprecher. He had always hired the editor in chief of the law review at Northwestern because he was the editor in chief of the law review at Northwestern. But uh, he opened his door to me I had a wonderful, wonderful clerkship with him. He loved to write. I loved to write. We had an incredible time. And from then on, Sprecher always hired the editor-in-chief of the Law Review from Northwestern because he was editor-in-chief, but he always held the spot for someone who was not from Northwestern. So he had an open mind. And So you uh, opened that door. And I what opened year, that door. What year was that? That was 1975 that I clerked from Sprecher, 75 to 76. And 
in that time, since Bob Sprecher loved to write so much, he said, if I had any spare time, I could also work as a staff attorney for the Seventh Circuit. That also was an incredible experience. So about 15% of my time, I wrote uh, bench memos for panels of judges, cases that would not be argued orally. So I got to meet all the judges in the circuit and got to get feedback on my writing from all the judges. That really served me well as a district judge because they knew who I was. And then later on, some uh, were colleagues, judges who were there when I was a baby, uh, law clerk and AUSA were still on the court when I joined the court. So that's, that that's was a wonderful nice. thing. There is such a thing as a court family. I, you know, we always talk, we, the people say the court family. And I think to outsiders, that probably just sounds like uh, Oh, some sort of motivational talk, but it's actually true. There is such a thing as a court family, and it feel, has that feeling. Uh, might you have been there then the year that Justice Stevens was elevated to the Supreme Court? Absolutely. So my judge's other best friend was John Paul Stevens. In fact, when Justice Stevens, because it was between Phil Tone and John Paul Stevens. And when and John Paul Stevens got the nod, he actually came to my judge. My judge had the second uh, black woman secretary, full secretary in the circuit, Nellie Pitts. So he came down to ask my judge if Nellie could come with him to the Supreme Court. And Nellie went to DC and was with Justice Stevens over 25 years. And finally, she said, well, the justice was never going to retire, but she wanted to spend time <laughs> with her grandchildren. So she she left before he, he retired. But anyway, and then we moved from our chambers to Justice Stevens' chambers. So I've had, had a relationship with him all through those years. Had an opportunity to have a conversation with him like we're having here. Uh, I won the John Paul Stevens Award, uh, always visited him when I was in DC. In fact, when I was a young AUSA and we were doing training at the Department of Justice, um, Nellie would help me get tickets so I could go to arguments in the Supreme Court. So five of us were there for training and two supervisors were there doing the trial advocacy training. So I asked my mates, you know, you know, I've got tickets to go hear the Williams case in the Supreme Court. You want to come? And they said, yes. So we ducked out of class that day and went to the Supreme Court and they got to meet the justice. When we got back to class, my supervisors were highly irritated that I had not included <laughs> them. But I said, look, you were the ones you're teaching. How could you leave to go to the Supreme Court? But anyway, uh, he became a mentor to me and was a big supporter of mine as I moved through the ranks. My judge sadly passed before I went on the district court, but Justice Stevens was there for me. And I met nice? with him and chatted with him all through the years, yes. That is mm -hmm. so great. I had, a, you know, this is not about me, but I had a, a somewhat special relationship with him as well. Um, partly be, because my father was the attorney general who, mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in effect, uh, pulled him along. At that time, the attorney general really had a big big say in who would be presented to the president. Uh, they, and they knew each other. They, 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 Justice Stevens occasionally taught at the University of Chicago, but he also went to the laboratory school where I went. And also you, your, your 
family also has a tie to the laboratory schools at the University of Chicago. You were president of the board there and you had children who went there. So there were a lot of, a lot of different connections and I, I didn't know about that, but I, th I, I've always understood that the seventh, all the judges of the seventh circuit were always very proud of justice Stevens and, and oh, there absolutely. have, there have, and he, of course, he loved the, he loved the circuit. Yes, he uh, did. And and by the way, I wasn't chair of the school board. I was just a member of the school you board. You were the mem a member. I was a well, member, yes. Member. <laughs> so um, when you left as a law clerk, uh, you'd had this wonderful experience. And then I don't know whether you went directly into the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago or if there was any sort of interlude there. Um, but this would have been in the in the in the mid seventies, and you you had a great career there. I think you and I may have met uh, at some point during this time uh, before you went on the bench. You were you were chief of the criminal division, and you were chief of the organized uh, drug enforcement task force. I think we used to call that OCDF. Right. Um, and I don't know. Tell us about that experience because I think people now don't really. It's hard to capture what was happening uh, in the in the 70s, particularly the 70s, I think, with the influx of drugs. All of a sudden, the United States was experiencing the surge in organized drug activity and coming in from Colombia and Venezuela and all sorts of places. And we had this Drug Enforcement Administration that was feeling quite overwhelmed by it, but also feeling... Like maybe we can get we can get control of this because there had been times when they had control of it, um, but we didn't really succeed in doing. I don't think. But anyway, I'm interested in why you went there uh, to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and um, you have these management roles. You know, let's let's talk about that. Well, um, first I got exposure to the U.S. Attorney's Office clerking for Judge Sprecher admired the work that they did. They were always prepared. They wrote well. They argued the case as well. So that impressed me. But I was planning, because I go back to Thurgood Marshall and Perry Mason, I wanted to be that lawyer that cross-examined uh, someone on the stand and they confessed. Or I turned to the audience and cross-examined them in the pew and they confessed. So being a defense attorney and also being a black woman coming out of Detroit and seeing uh, the unfairness to me in the criminal justice system, particularly in terms of representation uh, for people to get great representation on the federal defender or the public defender side, not that we don't have incredible public defenders and federal defenders, but most of those offices then and today are severely overworked. Their caseloads are incredible. They can't handle the, the volume and they've always been underfunded, underfunded and underpaid. So I, I applied to the Federal Defender's Office, but there was a black assistant US attorney, the first woman, Marianne Jackson, who heard that I had applied to the Federal Defender's Office and called me out of the blue, didn't know me and said, hey, would you go to lunch with me? And I'm like, yeah, okay. We went to lunch and she said, you know, Anne, it's the prosecutor that has the power because the prosecutor evaluates the evidence, makes decisions about who to charge. It's the prosecutor who meets with the agent and the police and gets a window and actually is obligated to find out how the police investigated. Was the search valid? Uh, uh, help issue an arrest warrant. 
make sure the rules and the protections that were guaranteed under the Constitution are there. And she said, we need that kind of representation all up and down the food chain, the criminal justice food chain, not just with defenders who basically get what the prosecutor hands them, but those who actually have the ability to bring charges or not bring charges, to make sure things are done in a fair way. And after that conversation with Marianne Jackson, I applied to the U.S. Attorney's Office. And uh, fortunately, I was hired. I wanted to go into the division for the young lawyers, criminal receiving an appellate where I would do appeals and learn about search warrants and issue arrest warrants and do the baby cases. I was assigned to the public, uh, to another section in criminal civil rights and public protection. I was assigned there with three other women and one black man. In the division I wanted to go to, there was basically all men, all white men, I think exceptions of one woman. And we were told there weren't spots in that division, but I knew I needed that kind of training in order, look, a civil rights criminal case is very hard to prove yeah. and a sophisticated crime. But I wanted to get my foot in the door, which of course is one of the lessons I tell young lawyers and even not so young lawyers. Sometimes you take what you have to do. You take what you can to get your foot in the door to open things up. And so I took that position. And uh, about three months in, I could see I wasn't going to get the experience. The best thing about that position was my supervisor was Alana Diamond Rovner. Oh, yeah. Uh, was one of my mentors, <laughs> right? And so working for her was wonderful. She shortly left to become deputy governor for Jim Thompson. So I uh, tried to move to the division I thought I belonged to and was told no by the chief. So I went to my deputy chief. I went to a deputy chief and said, look, I have five lawyers. We would love to do appeals. We know you're overworked. We know that all these appeals are, you're not able to handle it with the lawyers in the division we wanted to go to. I said, so we'd all be happy to do it. So we volunteered and that's how I got to argue in the seventh circuit. And then I had him go down to the chief and say, they need duty days. They need to learn how to do arrest warrants and search warrants. And so he came back, he got us duty days. And after about a year, I got transferred to that division. So um, I guess I would say here to those listening and who perhaps are not where they want to be, that it's not just getting your foot in the door, but it's standing up and speaking up for yourself, being yeah. strategic, learning the game, seeing where you see a void and figuring out a way to fill that void. I'm not a Pollyanna, so I don't think that strategy works all the time. But to me, when a door is closed, you find a way to open it or you move to a new door. That's always been my philosophy. I think that's helped me in my uh, career but it's part of what my parents taught me to never give up. So uh, that office has always had some really great trial lawyers in it. And I'm wondering if you had, uh, did you try cases yourself? And uh, did you enjoy that? You had the Perry Mason idea in your mind that might've been a little different than normally happens. Not too many defendants are put up on the stand to confess, but it does happen. Right, right, right. Well, no, I mean, and that was when I decided I would be a lawyer and I mentioned, you know, lawyers have to persuade, teachers persuade. That's what I want to be a trial lawyer. 
And so I started trying cases almost once we got, once I got those other assignments, uh, I was able to try cases and that's what I love doing. I love being in front of the jury. I love people. I think I'm good at interacting with people because I think the other thing my parents taught me was always humility. So I never forgot where I came from. And so I think I could relate to the everyday regular jurors. And so I love trying cases. I also, this training I mentioned at the Department of Justice, it was trial advocacy training. I had taken trial ad, I took trial ad in law school. I learned from some of the best trial lawyers in, in the U.S. Attorney's Office. You were always, we always tried two lawyers on a case and on the really big cases, three lawyers. And you always got to try, you got to put witnesses on, you got to prep witnesses, go to the grand jury. So I loved it. That led to, I took the NIDA course at Northwestern, went up to one of the professors, Jim Seconder, and said, one day when I've tried enough cases, I really want to teach in NIDA. The next year I was asked to be a, a team assistant team leader in NIDA. I've been with NIDA ever since. I've taught hundreds hundreds of NIDA trial ad programs, uh, motions programs, deposition programs. Uh, I'll do a lot of that kind of work in Africa. I then uh, taught trial ad at Northwestern for about seven years. I taught at the Harvard trial ad program with Judge Prentice Marshall, who was also one of my heroes. And Prent invited me to join his team. So I, I, I am a teacher and I am a trial lawyer at heart. So yes, yeah, those exciting. skills were really, really important. And, and it was important to be there as a black person, as I mentioned, and a black woman to, to be a role model. And uh, so it, it, was a, it was a great experience. And a lot of those people in the office are still very dear friends. And the other thing I would say is Marianne Jackson was right because at the time I was there, there was a gearing up of prosecution of quote, welfare mothers. You might remember that David. Yeah, and, I do. Uh, and uh, so that was coming out of Maine justice. And uh, so it was one thing to me to prosecute for a felony, someone who was working a job and getting welfare benefits and driving like a Cadillac and you know diamonds and all of that. But many of the women and the men who were double dipping, had a job and were doing well, uh, getting a check, were people who were really just trying to feed their families. And it wasn't a situation where they were putting money on luxury. So I was able to be a voice for people like that to say, those people should be deferred because if yep. you stick them with a felony, they're going to have a felony conviction. And what's going to happen? That even if they pick up a probation sentence, they are not going to be able to work. And so they have no income. Better let us have a deferral. They could continue their jobs or they could at least get a job, uh, have to comply with certain rules and conditions for a year. So I felt my voice made a difference in the various at the various levels of prosecution it made a difference when agents came to me and i knew they had done something they shouldn't have done because then yeah. i would know i can't use that evidence and i meant that it made a difference when i went to the grand jury instead of just rotely advising people of their rights i would say you know you have a right to a lawyer a lawyer can't be in here with you a lawyer is on duty right now in the federal defender's office that you don't have to pay 
that would represent you if you wanted to do. Do you want to stop this proceeding and go get a lawyer? No. Well, a lot of the people who showed up in the grand jury, if they were sophisticated criminals or sophisticated period, they would always take the fifth. They would say, I, I want to remain silent. I'm not going to discuss anything about this event. But poorer people tended to want to explain. Big mistake. <laughs> but I wanted to make sure when they did that, they understood that everything they said was being written down, could be used against them in trial to break it down in a way so that I never had any suppression I had never had a guilty plea turned back. I never had anything I did in the grand jury to come back and haunt me because I was so careful about making sure people understood their rights. So there is this very strong role. Prosecutors have to play fair. It's a fair win, not win at every cost. You know, going back, uh, that was my experience as well, I wanna say. I, I, uh... I always felt uh, the wonderful thing about being a, an assistant U.S. attorney was that every day um, you could make what you considered to be the right decision and you had no reason not to. You weren't under pressure. Um, really, people trusted in you to use your very best judgment and always said you could you could sleep well at night. You, you never, I mean, sometimes you make difficult decisions and sometimes maybe you come to think you made the wrong decision, but you could usually fix it. And um, you were always acting in good faith and what you took to be the best interests of the, of the overall system in the society. But yeah, and, and on the, old, the whole drug thing, because we started out this conversation. Yeah. So, of course, we know about the act that was passed in the 80s, particularly yeah, when this whole war on drugs started. And it was also a time when all these mandatory minimums started, which... Right just uh, not a good idea then, not a good idea now. And of course, we see the consequence of the war on drugs. The, the, the prisons, the, the, I, don't, I don't know, I want to say it's doubled, quadrupled, whatever. It's a huge number of black and brown people in jail because of drug crimes. Part of the problem in the whole drug area was that like when I was chief of the OSADEF, uh, we were supposed to dismantle large drug trafficking organizations across right. five states, working with U.S. attorneys in five states, working with the IRS, DEA, uh, local agents, uh, FBI, to do a coordinated effort. And so in that sense, it was successful. The problem, though, was we never got to the big, big fish. So you got the organizations that were selling drugs on the ground, and you could seize you know, uh, some of these shipments, but in terms of who was responsible for bringing the shipments in, I'm talking the people at the top of the food chain, it was a very, very difficult thing. So you ended up often with a lot of the people that were at the low end of the pole. And then the other thing that happened in the effort to try to get to the higher end or to try to find the distributors, a lot of the people who were more senior in the organization and more sophisticated would get lawyers, would come in and would cut good deals. I will, I yes, and I will flip and I will tell you about X, Y, and Z. A lot of the people at the lower end of the food chain only just knew the people that they knew and they couldn't do anything. Right. So we actually had situations where the people who were less culpable got higher sentences than the people who were more culpable 
because of that. And there were so many people who were addicted. And so this is just, you know, this war on, I mean, the, 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 to me, the, the recognition that people who are addicts should be treated for their addiction, should get skills, should get an education rather than being prosecuted. When you looked at it in the crack cocaine disparity, 101, the powder to the, to the, to the crack cocaine was just outrageous and really decimated the black and brown community. So I would say the war on drugs has been a failure, really a failure. You know, so many things have good intentions and end up with mm -hmm. bad results. Uh, you know, the sentencing guidelines might be one of those places where we've seen, um, it's just so vexing and, and, and disappointing. The, one of the big efforts was to make sure that like cases were treated in like fashion, no matter who the defendant was, what race, what gender, whatever, and that we would have these guidelines. And then judges said, well, these guidelines are so unfair. I can't, I can't treat the person, the whole person. So then eventually the Supreme Court said there should be more discretion. And now we have more discretion, but we have racial disparity as a result. Well, and so, well, yeah. you know, you can't well, win, it seems. No, no. And the thing is, like you said, they were designed, like when I was in, first an assistant U.S. attorney, we used to get what's called Rule 20. I don't know what the rule is, the number is now. But I didn't understand why so many people from the South or so many people from, I don't know, maybe Nevada or some of the smaller states would come to Chicago to plead guilty. Yeah. But finally, one of the defense attorneys said, look, Ann, for these five checks that they stole in uh, Mississippi, they would get three years up here, automatic probation. So, yeah. you know, so the disparity was and that was the intention of the guidelines. But yeah. it was it did not play. It did not play out that way. And the other thing is. So, so there were times when I was on the bench, it was just horrible. Sentencing was the worst because I was bound by the guidelines. I couldn't figure out a way to depart for people who were worthy, people who I actually felt really were remorseful, who, who if they had just been given a shorter sentence or they had been given probation with tight uh, restrictions would have done just fine. We were required to send them to jail and so the other thing with the guidelines, it vested even more power in the prosecutors. In addition to vesting more power, they allowed uh, conduct that was not included in the indictment, uncharged conduct to be put into the guideline mix, the guideline formula. So it just, it was just very problematic. And then when they became not mandatory, there was a whole generation of judges who grew up under the guidelines. And when you look yeah. at the data, they sentenced the same way that they would have if it had been mandatory, because there's a whole generation of judges, unlike me, who never had the discretion, because when I started, right. I had total discretion. So you yeah. still see the same disparity. So you still have the issue of prosecutorial uh, discretion as well as judges sort of being locked into that formula and giving the same sentences. So it's still unfair. It still affects black and brown people more than any other group in our society. Well, it affects poor people, I think. And is, poor people, is, right. And, and, you know, I think um, Americans just may want to consider that the criminal justice system can't solve a lot of these these problems and we tend to talk that way 
like we want more prosecutions and um, you know where are the prosecutions but you know that's that's a that's sort of an American tendency but it's not it's not one that's worked out all that well well no, you became go ahead. no because no I would just say because the root of the problem in this country we have to grapple with what we're grappling with now the whole systemic institutional racism we have to deal with that as a country we have to deal with the inequities of poor poor people the way poor people are treated you know i mentioned the public defender and not having a lawyer it is a you know ed housing matters education matters job skills matter and we haven't been equitable and fair in the way those things have been uh uh meted out in our society you just right. and so it's, it's all true. a consequence i think it's just it's just, and now you're seeing it come to the surface and so many people, I mean, I was familiar with it all my life, but now other people are familiar with it. We have more allies across all racial groups, all ages that see what the impact of racial oppression in so many areas have uh, meant. But in the bottom line is you're right, the criminal justice system can't solve all of these problems. We as a society have to grapple with them on an entirely different level. But I, I just want people to know when they write this history that when they look at David Levy and Ann Williams and they say, what were you doing in the 1980s? We thought we were protecting vulnerable communities from predators. That's what we thought we were doing. That's what that's we true. hoped. That's what we and hoped to do. That's And in fact, the Congressional Black Caucus was in favor of the legislation. Yeah. You know, uh, everybody signed off on this legislation. And so unintended consequences. Yeah, that's uh, the name of the here. game here. Yeah. yeah, it's been sad. Well, in 1985, a little bolt of lightning found you and President Reagan appointed you to the district court. And uh, tell us about that. That was probably ex very exciting, I'm sure. Um, what, how did that happen? <laughs> well, uh, part of it, this drug task force, a job I did not want. I was deputy chief of criminal receiving and appellate, the division I had wanted to be in originally. I love supervising the new young lawyers. I loved editing their briefs and going to trial with them and prepping them for their arguments in the court of appeals and i was very happy i was on maternity leave and a i found out that the chief of the division i was in was moving to a different position and i had worked very hard in that division and i felt i was the heir apparent well i one of my lawyers called me and said hey heard that someone else is getting that position so I met with the U.S. attorney uh, that next day, wanting to know why I didn't get it. And he said, well, I have something else in mind for you, uh, chief of the drug task force. Well, I had already spent some time in the drug unit. I didn't want to do any more time there. And he said, well, just hold on. You will, it will, it's a five state region. You will work with all these U.S. attorneys, all these agencies, and you have to report to Maine Justice as well. And it was a raise and I would be chief. And so I said, yes, because I said, you never know who you're going to meet in DC and along the way. Well, it turned out that each of those US attorneys became judges. Joe Stapmuller in Milwaukee that I worked yeah. with, Sarah, Sarah Barker in Indianapolis, 
uh, in uh, Jim Rosenbaum in Minnesota, and the judge in Iowa became a bankruptcy judge. Anyway, my name came up. It was, uh, my name came up. President Reagan didn't have a long track record of appointing Blacks to the bench. And I was the first Black woman, and and I think the only Black woman he nominated. And Senator Chuck Percy was my senator. He was a Republican senator. And Chuck Percy was uh, very open in terms of his nominations. He did not have a judicial nomination committee, but he had like a, he had like an advisory group. And they advised him on people and he nominated both Democrats, Republicans and independents. I was an independent and I was considered a justice pick. And having served in the U.S. Attorney's Office and having had interactions with all these U.S. Attorneys plus Maine Justice, because at Maine Justice, Giuliani was the chief of the criminal division and followed by Lowell Jensen out of California. So Lowell is who I work with the most. So when my name came up, uh, by came to Senator Percy, he checked me out. I had these strong recommendations from all the people that I mentioned who happened to be appointed by Republicans. And it turned out Sarah Barker actually uh, worked for Senator Chuck Percy. So when my name came up, I was known in the White House, but I was an independent. The other thing is because of the NIDA ties, because the biggest thing, the the only thing they really said, because I had tried more cases than most of the judges on the bench, was she hasn't had a civil background, but of course I clerked for a year and all that teaching I did, we were teaching civil files, we were teaching discovery. So it was a lightning strike moment because uh, it was very unusual. I had never seen myself as a judge. I, My name had come up the year before when Alana Rovner got the district court spot. That was really the first time I started thinking about it. I didn't think it was really realistic. Here I was, little black girl from Detroit, no political ties. But it turned out a lot of what I had done provided the foundation. And I'll never forget the question I was asked at the Chicago Bar Association. There were about, oh, 25 lawyers surrounding me in a big U. I was at one end by myself. So finally, because I was just 35, one of the lawyers said, well, Miss Williams, if you get this, you will be 35, the youngest one you'll be black and you'll be a woman. How will you handle it? So I said, well, I've been black and a woman all my life. I've been able (laughs) to handle that so far. And as to age, that too will change. Uh, And fortunately, (laughs) I was approved by that group as well as six others, because at that time, you didn't just fill out the form for the Senate Judiciary Committee. Now in every state, whatever the process is, you fill out that form, you fill out one form that takes care of it. I had to fill out seven. Uh, At the time the uh, paperwork came to me, I was two or three days from the birth of my second child. And I was told to get it done really fast because they were trying to get me done in 84. So when I was in the maternity, when I went in for the baby, I told my husband, bring the paperwork. So in the, <laughs> in the early hours of labor, 
one of the nurses heard him, you know, asking questions, you know, uh, he, I, he was like, you know, what year did you graduate from law school? And did all of, <laughs> well, it sounded like the questionnaire for the hospital. So she said, oh dear, you've already pre-registered. You don't have to do any of that. And I was like, oh, well, thank you, but this is something else. <laughs> So I stopped when the labor got too bad and, uh, I'm and glad. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, but I had her and I had to go right back to filling out all the paperwork. Now, the thing about president Reagan, which to me, I wish all the presidents did this. People see the Supreme court and they're like thinking, well, maybe everybody goes to the white house when they get nominated. As you know, that is not true. Uh, usually, well, all the justices do, uh, but and an occasional controversial judge will go to the White House, but most of us, you don't meet the president, you don't, you know, it's none of that. But what Reagan did when he wanted to nominate, he called you. He made a personal phone call. So I had heard that. I ran out and got a phone recorder, which back in the day, that's what you could do. I got a phone recorder. So when Reagan called, you know, the operator said, please hold for the president. I was, <laughs> I was nursing Claire, my second born. I literally threw her over to my mother, ran up the steps, because that's where the recorder was, hit the button, and was breathless when, I, when the president uh, said, Miss Williams, I'd like to nominate you. And I was, yes, Mr. President, thank <laughs> you. It's a great honor. But, uh, and then we put that in the tape, but I tell you this, anybody nominated by Reagan remembers that moment. Judge Williams has had a wonderfully varied and distinguished legal career. And there is so much more to talk about. Her tenure on the bench, from the U.S. District Court to the Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, and her more recent efforts to strengthen the rule of law in Africa. We will get to all of that, as well as her observations about the federal justice system and her judicial heroes in part two of this podcast. Please stay tuned. Thanks for joining me today. For Judgment Calls, I'm David Levy. Judgment Calls is produced by the Bolch Judicial Institute at Duke University. Find us online at judicialstudies.duke.edu.